God, we do want to see you seated on your throne. And we believe that you can do this for us by opening the eyes of our heart to receive your word with faith. So would you help us to do that now so that we can adore you? God, would you make our hearts exultant as we consider your glory? God, we sense in our hearts so many things that cloud our ability to focus on your glory. We sense in our hearts uh, the things that Jesus said can prevent the seed of your word from bearing fruit. Our hearts are weighed down with the cares of the world. Our hearts are full of desires for other things. God, would you kindly and powerfully uproot these things from our hearts so that we can be affected by your word as you intend. God, we want to pray the prayer of Moses and say, please show us your glory. If mountains melt like wax before you, this is not too hard for you, God. God, I pray that you would work in us what's pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so we've spent several sermons recently uh, when, when I've preached looking at Revelation chapters 2 and 3 together. And in those chapters, Jesus dictated seven letters to seven churches in Asia. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And we finished looking at these seven letters to the churches the last time I preached. And this morning I want to continue in the book of Revelation and look at chapter 4. So if you haven't done so already, please open your Bibles there now. The first half of chapter 4, which we'll look at today, describes the king on the throne. And the second half describes the worship around the throne. Chapter 4 begins a new section in the book of Revelation. Uh, you'll notice if you look at verse 1 that chapter 4 begins with the words, After this, I looked, and behold, meaning after Christ's letters to the seven churches in Asia, this is what John heard and saw next. And so even though this next vision, beginning in chapter 4, isn't directly addressed to the seven churches like the letters of chapters 2 and 3, the churches are still the intended audience here. And the whole book of Revelation is is for them, and by extension, for us, too. John indicates this in his introduction. In, in chapter 1, verse 4, he writes, John, to the seven churches in Asia. And John was obeying Jesus when he wrote that introduction, because Jesus told him to write this book to these churches. Later in chapter 1, John reports how, how all of this vision-seeing and book-writing uh, began in the first place. Verse 10 of chapter 1, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. As chapter 4 begins, John hears the very same trumpet-like voice and finds himself once again in the spirit, seeing visions from the Lord. 
Look at that with me, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. We read, after this, I, John, looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, imagine hearing these words, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, again, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This is the call to see the king. John sees a door open in heaven, standing open. He hears a voice blasting from heaven. And as we pointed out, he hears these exhilarating words come up here. And this call of the king is an effectual call. The spirit immediately makes it so. John finds himself at once seeing heaven. And what John sees is a vision of unimaginable beauty and terrifying splendor. We read in verse 2 that through the door standing open in heaven, John sees a throne standing in heaven. Now what is significant about a throne? This is an easy one. Thrones represent rule, authority, sovereignty, kingship, power, dominion, control. Everything that has come before this scene in the book of Revelation, which means all of the difficulties that the churches were facing. God is sovereign over all of it. A throne stands in heaven. And everything that is about to come after this scene in Revelation All of the judgments of God that are going to be poured out on the earth, they flow from his throne. He is sovereign over all of it. And this is why the voice at the end of verse 1 told John, I will show you the things that must take place. It is necessary that these things that you will see take place. It's not just that they will take place. As if God only knows the future exhaustively. The things John will see and write about must take place. Because God controls the future exhaustively. His will must happen. This is the throne of all majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And the Lord knew That his church needed to see this vision of the throne in the midst of the struggles and challenges they were facing. And the Lord knew that his church needed to see this vision of the throne before they read later in the book about things like plagues afflicting the whole earth. And this should have given them great comfort and holy courage to be reminded that everything that comes to pass must must take place in accordance with his will. You need to see the king of glory on his throne. If you will respond to pressures and challenges in faith and hope and confidence and love and obedience and hope and true worship, because Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but you can take heart Because of the authority and majesty represented by this throne, John saw. 
His will must be done and he must be worshipped. It will be so because his throne stands in heaven. Now, we should notice the very first thing that grabs and holds John's attention on the other side of heaven's door is not merely that throne in and of itself. It is, as, as we read at the end of verse 2, the one seated on the throne that John begins to describe first of all. So look at verse 3 in your Bible as I read it out loud. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. We've heard the call to see the king, and now we see the beauty of the king. And consider this vision in comparison to the greatest throne rooms this world has ever seen. When human kings have been seated in the most resplendent uh, human throne rooms throughout history, we might find them on a throne of gold or silver or ivory or marble, maybe a throne bedecked with jewels, but the ones sitting on them are dust. They are just men, and to dust they will return, or already have returned. By contrast, when John sees the king of all kings, it is the one seated on the throne who appears most magnificent. John doesn't even describe the throne he's sitting on. No earthly king ever personally outshined his throne in beauty. But the king of heaven does. And John sees the enthroned Lord manifesting his glory with the appearance of two precious stones. According to Bauer's lexicon for the uh, Greek New Testament, this word we translate jasper refers to a precious stone found in various colors, mostly reddish, sometimes green, brown, blue, yellow, white. In antiquity, the name was not limited to the variety of quartz we now call jasper, uh, but could designate any opaque precious stone, though some think it refers to the diamond. Now, I'm among those who think this probably refers to a diamond, or at least something that looks like a diamond. And why is that? Well, another time, later in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is carried away in the Spirit. That keeps happening to him. And he sees again the glory of God in heaven, appearing like a jasper. That's in chapter 21, beginning in verse 10, where we read that he carried me, John, away in the Spirit, again, to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The radiant beauty of God that John sees lighting up the new creation city is like a jasper, a most rare jewel, it is clear as crystal, which sounds a lot like a diamond to me. Now, when we talk about a large diamond, we are typically thinking of something that is about the size of a pinto bean. How can we even imagine what John is describing here? 
the one sitting on the throne himself, brilliantly sparkles like a diamond the size of his entire person, filling up the throne of heaven, looming large over the throne of heaven. And this imagery is not enough to sufficiently describe the incomparable beauty of this glorious one. So John adds to the appearance of Jasper also the appearance of another precious stone, carnelian. Your your translation may say sardius. Uh, Carnelian is a precious stone with a reddish luster. Some think it's best to translate this word as ruby or something like that. And again, it's, it's just impossible to wrap our minds around a carnelian or ruby of this size and splendor. It's as great as one seated on the throne and beaming with diamond-like brilliance. And if that wasn't enough to stupefy you and make you want to bow down and worship, God goes on to report that the glow of his glory was like a rainbow made of an emerald. After citing two Very beautiful jewels to try and describe the appearance of the Lord. John next reaches for two other very beautiful things. Rainbows and emeralds. To try to communicate the loveliness of his radiance. And the second half of verse 3, again, says, Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now an emerald, of course, is a vivid green, somewhat transparent, precious stone. I hope you're trying to picture this. The brightness shining around his throne like an emerald rainbow. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Psalm 104.2 says, God wraps himself with light as with a garment. So I think the imagery of these precious stones, the jasper and carmelian, the the emerald, and also the rainbow, it suggests a dazzling refraction of the light of his presence and an overwhelming intensification of his brightness. Now, if we keep reading in chapter 4, we find out that John sees some really weird and wonderful things in this throne room scene. He sees four living creatures and each have six wings. One creature looks kind of like an ox, another like a lion, one is man-faced, the last is like an eagle in flight. All of them have eyes, lots and lots of eyes. Verse 8 says they are full of eyes all around and within, and they're incessantly chanting worship songs. Now, if a creature like that were in this room, it would be terrifying. It would also be hard to take our eyes off of it, wouldn't it? Hard to focus on anything else. Unless, apparently, you were also in the presence of this one seated on the throne. Because he outshines them in splendor. And this one on the throne is even more striking and more unlike anything John has ever seen. And so his appearance grips John, first of all. He is far more interesting and wonderful. And as we read on in chapter 4, we find these marvelous creatures themselves are transfixed on the king's great glory also. 
Now, some commentators attempt to guess what each little detail of, of this vision symbolized. The jasper means this, the carnelian that, the emerald hue of the rainbow, this other thing besides. I don't know that we're supposed to see any distinct meaning in, in each of these things. The main idea is God's incomparable beauty and his priceless worth, his awesomeness, more glorious than anything you have seen or imagined. And I know some of you have been to the Grand Canyon and the Rocky Mountains and things, but the Grand Canyon and the Rocky Mountains and the sun itself and the Milky Way, all of these things should blush at how relatively plain and unattractive they are before the presence of this one. And even this vision does not and cannot fully capture the beauty and perfections of God's essence. And and so John uses the phrase, the appearance of, twice in this verse, to help remind us this is is a prophetic vision he's seen. He speaks in uh, similitudes about a symbolic vision the Spirit gives him. So we're not supposed to understand this as a literal, physical form of God in which he exists, but, but John's experiencing something like what we read about in the Old Testament, when various Old Testament prophets saw visible manifestations of, of God's glory and his presence, uh, so-called theophanies. And in fact, this vision in Revelation 4 has many, many correspondences with the visions of the likeness of God's glory that we read about in Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 7 and Isaiah 6. So the main point of this chapter is not God saying, let me show you what I really look like. Or even saying, let me show you what heaven really looks like. John speaks here not as a tour guide for heaven. John speaks as a prophet. And the intent of this prophetic vision is to blow your mind away with something of the likeness of God's indescribable beauty and glory and also his sovereignty and especially for the purpose of encouraging the perseverance of the saints as they struggle on earth. Now I want you to listen to the way Dr. Jim Hamilton, a former pastor of mine, invites his hearers to reflect on this vision and also how he applies it to our lives. He writes, Let me invite you to consider for a moment the most beautiful thing you could imagine. Now take that beauty and multiply it by infinity. And we might be getting close to what John saw. God created beauty. There is no defect in him. He is perfection. He is 10,000 times more lovely than the most compelling thing that tempts you. Are you bored with God? Do you find other things more interesting than he is? Things like television, pornography, video games. This verse and this chapter and this book and this Bible exist to convince you that God is infinitely more interesting than TV, or pornography, or video games, or anything else besides. You were made to know God. You were not made to fritter your life away. Let me encourage you to stop right now and ask the Lord to seal these images to your heart. 
pray that God would capture your imagination and lay hold on your desires, that he would make himself the supreme desire of your life. Pray that the next time you were confronted with some temptation, you would feel an overwhelming desire to conquer. Pray that God would make you feel that only a fool would choose the smutty, worthless, cheap imitation of pleasure that Satan offers you over the reality of the reward that God offers. There is no worldly entertainment, no worldly pleasure, and certainly no fleeting pleasure you could get from any sin that you could possibly hold up next to this vision of God in His glory and decide that it is better. It's not close. And you can weaken the pull in your heart to go after idols, the pull of your coveting. You can loosen the grip of the stranglehold of temptation by developing a superseding desire for the glory of God. To want to taste it more, see it more, to experience it by knowing Him and enjoying Him and walking with Him. You need to be struck and smitten by a vision of God's glory. And you don't have to be swept up in the Spirit into heaven to have your heart captured by the King's beauty. You need to hear His word with faith. You can start with this passage today. After John describes the one on the throne, he notices the king is not alone in his throne room. The king has company. Look at verse 4 with me. Around the throne there were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. This is our next main point. The company of the king. Now, we should be amazed that the king has company in his throne room in the first place. Heaven's king of glory is not a king who keeps the enjoyment of his glory all to himself. He shines forth the perfections of his beauty for others to enjoy, whom he created for this very purpose. He spoke into existence angels and men and and then redeemed some of these men at great personal cost in order to invite them into the blessed bliss of his glorious presence. There are pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. And his kind will is to share them with his company. I hope you realize God is not benefited or helped in any way by his company as though he needed anything or was incomplete or empty somehow on his own. Now this is grace. This is infinite generosity. The fact that the king has company in his throne room. That God would share himself with creatures he has created and redeemed to experience the joy of his own glory. Now who is the king's company we see here? These these 24 elders on thrones, around the throne, wearing crowns, white robes. This is actually one of the most disagreed-upon symbols in the whole book of Revelation. And I counted as many as seven different views in my study. Now, happily, there's, there's overlap amongst many of them, and most of them end up in the same place of application. 
Now, sorting through all of these options would take the rest of our time and then some, so I want to give you just what I think are two of the best options and then tentatively suggest what I think is the very best one. So here's good option number one. Many see these 24 elders and are especially tipped off by the number and, and think that it refers to the 12 apostles and 12 patriarchs of Israel. At the end of the book of Revelation, when that new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, the names of the 12 sons of Israel are written on the gates, and the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus are written on the foundation. And, and we've already seen how that vision from 21 has some connection to this vision of, of in chapter 4. Both, both feature the glory of God shining forth like crystal clear jasper. So in this view, the 24 elders stand for the apostles and and fathers of Israel, and thus, they represent all Old and New Testament saints. They represent the people of God, all the redeemed, including us, standing before the throne. Now, as a side note, some commentators see these elders representing only Old Testament saints, and others see only New Testament saints for one reason or, or another. Okay, here's what I think is good option number two. This isn't the only scene where these 24 elders appear in the book of Revelation. And based on the other appearances in Revelation, what we find these elders doing, where we always find them, who we typically find them with, and especially who they seem to be distinguished from. Many other commentators determine these 24 elders are actually angels, a worshiping priestly order of angels ministering around the heavenly throne of God. And as, as far as I can tell, viewing these elders as a kind of angel seems to be the majority position of commentators. So here's what I tentatively suggest as the best option, which, which is actually something of a middle position between the two I've just shared. I do understand that it's most likely these elders are angels, but I think John intends for us to see these angels worshiping God in heaven as representative of all the saints, all, all of God's people, including the seven churches of Asia, including us. We're supposed to see uh, these angel elders and think we belong there. We belong in the worshiping host of heaven right there with them. Now remember, all of the letters to the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3 are addressed to the angel of the church. And we said that the words to the churches were addressed to angels as heavenly representatives of the churches. Right? This reminded the, the churches that, that Christians belong to the worshiping host of heaven, that they were truly citizens of heaven even as they struggled on earth. And it's like the author of Hebrews wrote, you, in Hebrews 12, you, church on earth, have come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, and to God. Also, if we keep in mind what we heard in chapters 2 and 3, when Jesus directly addressed each church, we almost can't help but identify ourselves with these worshiping angels. In addition to the fact each church was represented by an angel in the letters, do you remember the various promises Jesus made to the churches? In chapters 2 and 3, they resonate very much with how these elders are described. So we read how these elders are clothed in white garments, 
And in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus told the faithful in the churches they will walk with him in white. Uh, we read here that these elders are, have golden crowns on their heads. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus told the believers in the churches, I will give you the crown of life. We see these elders sitting on thrones. And in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus promised believers in the churches they would participate in his own rule and reign and even share in his throne. All that, all that to say, I think all the Christians in the seven churches in Asia and all the Christians in Calvary Bible Church today should look at these elders around the king and think, that's where I fit into this picture. I am there represented. So, so in the end, when we understand these angels as representative of all of God's faithful, our, our interpretive options don't end up being that far apart, do they? Most end up seeing these elders representing the church in one way or another. But of course, we shouldn't just look at these elders as a naughty interpretive issue to try and sort through. We should look at them and be utterly astounded. Because when you look at them, you see them having the position and the possessions that Christ promised to us. This is incredible. And we would be tempted to say it was too good to be true if we didn't know God's word said it was. Now, reflecting how gracious the king is to have company in the first place, sounds almost too good to be true, but, but that being the case, it is almost overwhelming to consider how gracious the king is to honor his company like he does. To dignify and exalt his company in his presence like he does. I mean, look, look at this picture in your mind's eye of the great reward that Jesus promises to those who overcome the world by their enduring faith in Christ. I hope that I was describing the one on the throne in verse 3, that you thought something like, I, I would give almost anything to just be a fly on the wall in that throne room. But in God's immeasurable goodness, you can be in his presence in a way that is infinitely better than being a fly on the wall. Verse 4 did not say that around God's throne were flies. It said around the throne were thrones. It's astonishing that our place in the throne room is a circle of thrones around the throne from which we see and worship the Lord from which we fall on our faces off of our thrones and throw the crown off of our head before him and say, worthy, worthy is the Lord. Now, the seven churches of Asia needed this vision of God's reward as they struggled with persecution, even martyrdom and sin and false teaching and insignificance, poverty, ostracism, and a, a waning love and zeal. And we need this vision of heaven as many of us struggle with some of those same things. This vision of God in his beauty and authority and his unfathomably great reward for his company should have inflamed believers who lost their first love in Ephesus and should have encouraged believers who were suffering in Smyrna and lessened the allure of idolatry and sin in Thyatira and steeled the spine of the persecuted in Philadelphia 
and exposed the folly of false teaching in Pergamum and ignited the zeal of the lukewarm in Laodicea and even revived the dead church or dead church goer in Sardis. This vision should do the same for us in any of those categories as well. Now, if you're listening to me right now and you are not a Christian, consider the grace God offers to you. You have sinned. You have rejected the authority of this king that has made you. You have broken his law and you have treated yourself as the great high king of the universe, at least as far as your own life goes. And you deserve eternal judgment from this king. And you will receive it. It must happen. Unless you cry out to him for mercy. Because Jesus. Jesus paid for all the sins of all of his people on the cross. And then rose again. And if you will simply turn away from your rebellion against this king. And put your hope in what Jesus did to take away your sins, then you can receive a full pardon from this King of glory. And you can receive eternal life. You can receive a place amongst the worshiping host of heaven who are eternally delighted by the presence of this great King. And your experience of that eternal life will begin the moment you put your faith in Christ for salvation, even as you continue to live on this earth Because you will start to know God and enjoy the glory of who he is, even today. So you should trust him today. Join these heavenly elders in worshiping the king by his grace. Now we've seen the call of the king, the beauty of the king, the company of the king, and lastly we'll see the presence of the king together. So look at verse 5 with me. Consider the presence of the king. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So John sees lightning flashing and thunder booming and rumbling. Where are these sights and sounds coming from? Did you see it? They are coming from the throne. Now your imagination should go big here. Uh, John is not seeing some dinky little storm that you would probably let your kids play in. These are rumbles of thunder that shake the ground and flashes of lightning that are like blinding strobes and cracks of thunder that are ear splitting. Now this part of John's vision especially is reminiscent of one of the most significant theophanies in the Old Testament. When God came down, as it were, to meet Israel on Mount Sinai. Do you remember this? After he rescued them out of Egypt to be his people. And this event's described in Exodus 19, where we read, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, think to uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, so that all the people in the camp trembled. That was right. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, 
Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, on the top of the mountain. So when God appeared to Israel in a visible and and audible way, the people trembled. And, And we can understand why, because the whole mountain trembled in God's presence also. In the next verse, the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and they perish. And the threat of perishing was real. The frightening sight of lightning and the foreboding sounds of thunder rightly made them think of God's justice and his fierce judgments against sinners. And these symbols represent the very same thing when John sees them coming from the throne in heaven. In Revelation chapter 8, After the seventh and final seal of God's judgment is opened, there are peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquakes. And then in Revelation chapter 11, after the seventh and final trumpet of God's judgment sounds, there there are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. In Revelation chapter 16, after the seventh and final bowl of God's judgment is poured out, A loud voice comes from out of the temple in heaven, from a throne, saying, It is done. And there are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. So, as we read of the climax of God's judgments poured out on the earth upon the heads of sinners, we see and hear these rumblings of His justice. All of these fierce judgments flow from His throne. As as Jason read in his prayer, righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. John MacArthur writes here that what John sees is a precursor to the firestorm of divine fury about to be burst on the sinful world. God is holy. If we are his people, we are to strive after holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you are not a part of his people, you should run to Jesus as fast as you can and cling to him because God sent him to die in the place of sinners so that his cross could be a shield for you that protects you from these stormy judgments that come from his throne. And They must come, and even now they are flowing from his throne in his presence. I want to point out these stormy signs of judgments are part of the same vision John's been describing all along, which means John sees in the presence of the king coming from the throne storms and rainbows. Not storms, then a rainbow, as we're accustomed to, but simultaneously he sees the most frightening storm he can imagine and the most gloriously bright, beautiful rainbow shining all around. How can that be? Well, if the lightning and rumbling from the throne represent God's just judgments, the rainbow before the throne represents his mercy that is willing to relent of his judgment toward his people. The rainbow was, of course, the symbol of mercy God gave to Noah after the flood of his judgment. And the rainbow is intended to remind us that God saves his covenant people through his judgment. And he shows them mercy as God's terrifying mercy terrifying judgments will be poured out on the earth. God does not forget mercy toward his people. 
In the presence of the king, we see thundering justice and peacemaking mercy. God possesses every perfection. And every one of them in infinite measure at all times, unchangingly. Now when we consider the first part of verse 6, we find another expression of God's beauty that, that boggles our mind to understand how it could exist in harmony Besides thunderbolts of justice, verse 6 tells us, look at it, that before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This further corresponds with what Moses saw on Mount Sinai. Now picture being in the middle of the sea. Above you is a most terrifying storm. And below you, is a perfectly crystal clear glassy sea. This pictures peace and, and tranquility and beauty that exists in God's presence, even as judgments and tribulations and sufferings are experienced in the world below. Now, the crystal glassy sea also pictures God's holiness in every direction, as far as the eye can see. He is altogether set apart from everything that is impure and, and evil. This sea is a spectacular barrier between the throne and, and all that is below. An impossible barrier that highlights the exaltation and separateness of the king and his beauty. Leon Morris helps us understand this glassy sea even further when he writes, To estimate the significance of this symbol... We must bear in mind that modern ideas about glass did not apply in the first century. Then, glass was usually very dark, even opaque. Glass as clear as crystal would be enormously expensive. John sees a sea of it. Clear glass was thought of as splendidly magnificent, as suitable paving for a royal court. Do you long to be in the presence of this king? The appearance of the likeness of his glory as jasper, diamond, carnelian, emerald, crystal, rainbow, thunderstorm, glassy sea. Can you say with the psalmist, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. God promises that all his servants will see. They will gaze. The final chapter of the book of Revelation describes the eternal home of all who have been saved by Jesus, and it says the throne of God will be in it, and they will see his face. Isaiah thirty-three seventeen promises God's people, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. This is what theologians of old have called the beatific vision. It's the moment we sing about when, when we sing uh, the church's one foundation. When with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed. When the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. But even as we long for this much deeper and fuller and more beautiful and more intensely delightful experience of being in the presence of this great king, we nevertheless can enjoy his presence and glory now, too. And this truth is related to the part of verse 5 in, in our passage that we haven't discussed yet. 
Look one final time back at the second half of verse 5. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God are a symbolic manifestation of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit. So what's communicated about the Holy Spirit when we see him presented as the seven spirits of God before the throne? Now, many understand this communicates the perfections of the Spirit. Seven is a number of completeness, perfection in the Scriptures often. And related to that, others see the seven spirits of God symbolizing the Spirit, exercising the fullness of His ministry, again, uh, representing the completion. I believe the vision of the seven spirits is also meant to indicate God's presence with the churches on earth. God is present with His people with us on earth now by his spirit. The first time we meet the seven spirits in the book of Revelation, they're mentioned right beside the mention of the seven churches in Asia. I think we're supposed to equate the churches and the ministry of the spirit there. Likewise, this same symbolic representation of the spirit is found in chapter 5. And there they're said not only to be before the throne, but are also the seven spirits of God sent out into all the work into all the earth, further emphasizing the Spirit's work in and through the churches. And here, the Spirit is seen before the throne as seven burning torches. And perhaps that helps us connect the Spirit to the church even more, because back in chapter 1, John saw a vision, and in the presence of the Lord were seven lampstands, and the lampstands represented the churches. Lampstands, churches. Burning torches, the Spirit serve basically the same function. And so there too, we're reminded of how the Spirit indwells and, and empowers all true churches on earth. So what's the takeaway of all that? This God, who manifests himself in unimaginable beauty in heaven on a throne, is the very same God who is with us now by his Spirit. We are right now in the presence of the King of glory. We have been built up into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We don't taste and see His glory like we will one day, but we can taste and see some of His goodness and glory through the Word and prayer and our fellowship together because the King is present with us by the Spirit, which is good news because you were made to know God and to glorify Him and to enjoy Him and so if you're repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ for salvation from sin, then that door is wide open for you, even now. You don't need to be caught up in the Spirit to see this prophetic vision with your eyes to make the great goal of your life to gaze upon His beauty. Draw near to Him. Draw near to Him tomorrow. Draw near to Him the next day, believing He dwells near to you in His Spirit sent to earth. To indwell the church. Now in these days of pandemics and riots and injustices and economic uncertainties and societal fracturing, we need this vision. We need to see this vision John saw in the spirit 2,000 years ago. You need to know there is a throne standing in heaven. And this image 
this image of heaven's glorious king in Revelation 4 is actually far more relevant to our current moment than anything your eyes could behold on CNN or Fox News. You need to gaze upon the beauty of this king on his throne. You need to fix your attention him, on him. Do you see him? Seated and reigning and shining and thundering. But don't give the best of your heart and your attention to lesser things. Set your mind on these things above, which Dan preached last week. Set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated in heaven at God's right hand. The Lord has brought us to himself by the blood of his son's cross, by the spirit now sent into the world. So let's close in prayer to our God and King, asking him to help us do this. God, would you help us to set our mind on things above? Would you increase our love of your glory, increase our enjoyment in knowing you so that our heart would stop being gripped by lesser things as strongly as they are and so that we would respond rightly to all lesser things, not ignoring them but responding to them in the beauty of holiness. God, thank you for this text and this uh, time we've had looking at it together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.